0: Well, I'm very pleased to be here again. I didn't know it was as far back as that since I was last uh, with you. I want to speak to you tonight about uh, what is a Christian and seek to answer that question. And I uh, want to do so by uh, choosing a verse from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 that you will know. I have been crucified with Christ Nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ, liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. What is a Christian? And um, there are people who'd say, well, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Buddhist, um, I'm, I'm a Christian. And that's a perfectly understandable response to that question. Um, and then uh, we, we need to know a little better when people knock on our doors and want to talk to us about religion and, and they say they're Christian. Are, are we sure? Do, do we know that they really are Christians? And then our relationships with one another, we're to lay down our lives for the people of God. We are to love them in a particularly precious way because uh, the Savior has loved them and given himself for them and they are our brothers and sisters for eternity. Um, we, We want to know who they are. And when you hear from this pulpit, so very often you're urged to become Christians and you're pleaded with and beseeched. Become a Christian tonight. And that's what I'll be saying at the end of this message. And uh, so, what am I asking you to become? Well, then that's why it's uh, very important. Uh, and that's why I've read that uh, verse to you, because it seems to me the Apostle Paul is bringing together in uh, in that very packed verse some of the basic elements of what it means to be uh, a Christian. Uh, they tell us through his own self-understanding what he thought a Christian was. We're going back to the the origins of Christianity. We're going back to the very beginning, the first century. And we are wanting light from what they wrote to cast an answer of light on our dilemma. And the first answer I would give is that uh, a Christian is a human being. And um, people are very interested in being fully human. And there's an American character. She appears um, on chat shows on British television, uh, and she's uh, she's had personal problems and she's sought to resolve them. She's written a book, "How to Be a Human." Now, I I think that you might think it's rather strange that you would start by saying a Christian is a human being. But, uh, you know, um, young people are uh, are afraid that should they become Christians, they're going to lose something. They're going to be less human as a as a consequence. Perhaps you've met, we've met, some religious people who... I have a great image of rather an artificial attitude to to life, a, a certain weirdness. Um, and so i'm intrigued by what the apostle Paul says in this verse. He says, The life which I now live in the flesh. you see that he says that in the body. the fact that he had been converted And he'd come to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Hadn't overridden the the great fact that he was living in the flesh. He'd gone through momentous experiences. He'd gone through great trauma. Um, He could say, I live. Yet, no longer I. No longer the ego that once I was. um, there was a ch- chasm between what Saul of Tarsus, the bigot, the persecutor, and Paul the Apostle, the humble servant of Jesus Christ, was. But Paul is saying, in spite of the momentousness of that change when I became a Christian and when I changed so much, um, in spite of the revolutionary consequences for my life and my beliefs, I'm still living in the flesh. I haven't ceased to be human. I haven't ceased to be earthed and grounded in ordinary human circumstances and conditions. I'm still living in this world. I'm still living in the flesh. I'm I'm carrying about my same basic humanity. And I think that's... uh, Enormously um, important. Uh, he had the same DNA after he became a Christian than he had before. The the acid-carrying genetic information that made him the sort of man with his height and the color of his hair and his skin and his eyes and his, the shape of his body, the molecular structure, his personhood, His own individuality. His person hadn't been absorbed into some sort of uh, religious, standardized, computerized Christianity. He had a human temperament. He tells us there were days when he was pressed down beyond measure. And we've all had days like that when, when trouble seems to lead to another and the phone goes and, oh dear, we've, we've got to go over to see our sister or our brother or a member of our family who's going through a difficult time. Paul wasn't living in some great artificial high, some ecstasy bubbling away with a phony kind of joy. There were days when he was heavily laden, when he was pressed down beyond measure, when he was despairing even of life, Um, his temperament hadn't been overwritten so that that part of his human personality was destroyed. He tells us this, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Um, He learned it. It wasn't a matter of uh, being an all-round personality. Um, A matter of psychology. It suggests that after his conversion, he was still a a, a driving force. That there's a suggestion before his conversion, he was a dynamic and uh, focused and irritable person. A bundle of energy. But he had learned... He learned to be a man at rest, a man at peace. Um, he came to handle his temperament. He came to deal with his discontented spirit to control his impatience and his irritability. And he learned to master it by the grace of God. It wasn't destroyed in a moment. It wasn't, contentment wasn't something he picked up on the Damascus Road and from that time onwards he was laid back. Um, and then there were human affections that he had, too. He was a Jew, wasn't he? Um, and he writes in his letters to the Romans and he tells them of uh, the, the great affections he has and concern he has for his fellow people. When he went to a new town, he said, uh, can you tell me where the local synagogue is? And he went to the synagogue and he uh, talked to his fellow Jews because he says that um, I could wish myself separated and accursed from Christ for my brethren, my, my brothers, according to the flesh, he says, according to the spirit, he had people like us as his brothers. His conversion hadn't resulted in an end to his Jewishness. He was still a Jew. He was rooted in the culture of his own people, and he had a longing for them that they should appreciate the Messiah had come—the one that was promised, the, the line of the woman, the line of David, the line of Abraham—and and he was here. And that must be true for us too. You, yeah, we don't lose our ethnic and national and racial characteristics by becoming Christians. Um, I was feeling rather a long way from my homeland of Wales yesterday because the annual Wales versus England rugby match was taking place and I'm usually glued to the television for the hour and a half it lasts and hoping Wales are, uh, are going to win. I I don't lose those characteristics when I became a, a Christian. And then um, Paul retained in the body the weaknesses that we all have in, in the body. He wasn't suddenly given a whole new range of abilities when he became a Christian. He didn't find all his inadequacies taken away and replaced by marvelous new talents. It remains true in a way I find very comforting that people talked about Paul and they said... His bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. He didn't have the presence that you see uh, when John Wayne goes into a Western saloon. People stop and they look around because somebody has come into the room. Some people have a presence. Others can slip into a room and you don't notice that they've joined you. And his speech was contemptible. They said they were looking for an orator who could make their hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Um, Peter was the great orator, wasn't he? In the day of Pentecost, he showed that. But, but Paul didn't have the oratorical skills that people looked for wandering teachers in Greece in those days. We all come to Jesus with our weaknesses. And you know, there comes a time in your life where you thank God for those weaknesses because it's those weaknesses that turn us again and again to the Lord Jesus for help and wisdom and strength to go on in our lives. Paul felt his weaknesses very, very deeply. There came a time when The enemy was permitted by God to place a thorn in his flesh. We're not sure what it refers to, some necessity, some distress. It throbbed away. And Paul didn't say, oh, well, praise the Lord anyway. But he longed for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. And there were um, three sessions of prayer in which he rolled out before God all the disadvantages of the thorn in the flesh and all that it would mean to him, what he could do, how he could travel, how he could um, debate and preach and counsel, so much better, without the thorn in the flesh. He longed for it to go. We've, we've all got some weakness like that. And God's great answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. For you to do all I want you to do with the thorn in the flesh. I wonder how much we owe to our weaknesses. Those things that keep us depending on God, looking to God every day. Lord, take me through the day now. Paul remained a human being with a human being's temperament, with a human being's affections with a human being's weaknesses and uh, with a human being's interests. You know, the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's. He made the earth and he made its fullnesses. All oh, the variety of biological and, and animal life. the world of the atom and the molecule and the subatomic particles and the world of the moon and the stars that shine down upon it. And I don't think that one result of you becoming Christians is that from this time onwards nothing matters to you but religion. I'm an aberration and the ministers I've been with, you know, we spend so much time in our studies and we're reading and we're preparing messages, we're, we're not a role model in that way for every Christian. If you go to the Bible and you read the book of Job, or the writings of Moses, or Ecclesiastes, or Isaiah, they're interested in everything in God's creation. They're interested in music, and in mining, and in beauty, and in agriculture, And in commerce, in children's games, in navigation, in perfume, in politics, in travel, in medicine, in courtship. Even in matters military. Because they have this view of this is the creation of God. And these are men and women made in the image of God. And there are these marvelous gifts that God has given to us. Um, Lydia was a trader in, in purple. And uh, she was immensely influential as one of the founders of the Gospel Church in Europe. Um, They were people involved in the world of their day, and they were alert to its needs. And I'm sure they were thrilled by its achievements. You know, John Calvin was a great classic scholar, and so was John Wesley. He was a lecturer at Lincoln College in Oxford in in the classics, in Greek and and in Latin. And J. Gresham Machen, my hero in the seminary I studied at uh, Philadelphia, Machen loved mountain climbing. And there's a picture of him in The Most Curious of mountaineering garments on the top of the Matterhorn. And um, he wrote a lovely essay, Mountains and Why We Love Them. B.B. Warfield, you know, was an expert in shorthorn cattle and he wrote under a pseudonym. Pseudonym. And when there was published um, a bibliography, all that he wrote, they say in a footnote, we didn't include all the articles he wrote in the farmer's magazine on shorthorn, on short-horn cattle. There's a well-known story of uh, a man asked if he had any siblings. He said, yes, I've got two brothers. One is a Baptist minister, and the other is a human being, he said. (laughs) And I'm talking to you about such a tension, such a a dichotomy, um, as if, if you tonight become a Christian, and I want you to become a Christian tonight, that it will mean that you will uh, cease being a human being in some way. Um, You'll have to bring all you are and all you have to God. I'm I'm not holding that back from you. Your interests and your hobbies, your history, your plans for the future. There was a young Christian who came to Aberystwyth from Stratford-upon-Avon. He was a very earnest, a lovely Christian man. And his hobby was photography. And he had a nice set in a case of lenses and so on. And one day he told me he was selling it. Because it was becoming too much of an idol in his life. And I was really concerned for him. And I urged him not to. That it's a, It was a good hobby for a Christian to be interested in photography. But no, he'd made up his mind. And I was fearful he was becoming a little extreme in his Christianity. When I baptize um, students in Aberystwyth, their parents would come from London and Manchester and they'd come to the baptismal service. We'd have a cup of tea downstairs afterwards and, his parents would invariably say something like this so that they were glad he was religious as long as he didn't become extreme. And I can sympathize with that. I have three girls. I didn't want them to become extreme. I wanted them to be sweet and hardworking and caring and loving and doing what they could to help other people. And they've become like that I didn't want them to become extreme religionists well this boy who, um, who sold his, his camera and everything 20 years later he came with his wife on holiday and out of the blue he rang the bell in the months and oh, I welcomed them in we had tea together and we had a lovely talk about what had happened in the last couple of decades And then they got up to go, and he said, oh, I must take a photograph of you. And he brought out of uh, his pocket a beautiful beautiful camera. He'd given it to God, you see. He said, "I, I want to serve only you. I want to love you. And God had given it back to him. But no longer as his master, so he spent a lot of money and all his interest was this. But he gave it back to him as his servant. And that's what being a human being, serving God, does. It helps us what, whatever our interests and passions are. That we, we put them under the lordship of a loving saviour who made everything. That without him was not anything made that was made. And then he gives it back. And we use it to his glory and to his praise, whether it's in sport or it's in music or whatever it might be. The second thing that I find in this verse of what a Christian is, a Christian is someone who has the most exalted view of Christ. He has the maximal possible, the greatest possible The grandest possible view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how now he viewed. He didn't view him like that once, but now he saw him as the Son of God. God had a Son. Now everything a father is a son is Um, let's imagine a a scenario like this here are two new fathers their wives the previous day have given birth to sons in the local maternity hospital and they both arrive there and they go along the corridor there's a big glass screen and there's a, a couple of cribs there and they look through the screen and they Each of their sons, their newborn sons are there. And one father turns to the other and he says, my son is uh, 97% human. And uh, the other father looks back and he says, my son's 98% human. Well, that's totally imaginary, isn't it? They are 100% human beings. The two fathers and their two sons are 100% human beings. 100%. They're all that their father is. God is 100% divine. God has a son. He's not 90% God. 95, 99% God, not at all. He's 100% divine. The son of God. You see... He didn't have that view once. He knew Christ according to the flesh. He judged him by human criteria. He said to, so who is this guy? Where does he come from? Nazareth? Oh, what's his father do? Oh, he's a carpenter. A carpenter? And what's he teach? Oh, you love your enemies. Love your enemies, he says. How? Where is he? Oh, he's dead. How did he die? Oh, he was crucified. Crucified? Yes, the Sanhedrin passed judgment on him for blasphemy. And they handed it over to the Romans as a troublemaker. And they killed him. And so, being the man he was, Paul was determined to rescue his fellow Jews from this new heresy that had arisen. And then on the road to Damascus it wasn't that he had um, an experience of great darkness it was that he had an intellectual revolution that he came to appreciate a totally radical view of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the incarnate God, that he was the promised Messiah. He was Jehovah Jesus. That's who he was. And it was impressed indelibly on his conscience. He persuaded him, God persuaded him, that he was his own son. There is nothing more foundational for a Christian than that. This ascent of my mind that Jesus Christ is divine. And so, um, when we interview new members who want to join the church, we say, what do you think of Jesus? He's the Son of God and my Saviour. Welcome, brother, we say. That's the great affirmation that the early church made. We have a great high priest, it said. The early church wasn't bearing testimony to experiences it had. It was bearing witness to the glory of of Christ. You remember how men came to John the Baptist and they wanted John the Baptist to talk to them about John the Baptist and John the Baptist wouldn't talk to them about John the Baptist. He said, I must decrease. He must must increase. I'm unworthy to untie the leather strap on his sandals. Behold, the Lamb of God. God's Lamb. God's Lamb is taking away our sin. I want you to look at him. He said. He was pointing away from himself. And that's what we do. That's what I do all the time. I believe in the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. I believe he's always been. When everything else began, he didn't begin. Because he had no beginning. He was In the beginning with God, and in the beginning he was God. I believe he's the maker of heaven and earth. I believe he plotted the angle in which the earth would turn, and the distance the moon would be to operate the tides, and the distance the sun would be um, not too near to fry us, and not too far away to freeze us. God planned it all. And he upholds it all by the word of his power. And every chemical and physical bond in the universe were designed by God. When our children come home from the big school and they show us mathematics dad, physics dad, biology dad. We tell them these books are simply describing the thought patterns as we understand it now of our creator Jesus Christ. I believe one day he's going to come again and he'll pull the universe apart atom by atom and he'll put it together again in the twinkling of an eye but it will be a new heavens and a new earth and it will be righteous through and through from the galaxies to the molecules. I believe that you and I will have to stand before him. He's the judge of all the earth. This is a moral universe in which we live. And what you sow, that you will also reap. And God will hold you accountable for your life. And you will answer to him. I believe when you meet Jesus Christ, you meet ultimate and absolute and final reality. He's God. He's the only God there is. There's no other God but him. He is in the form of God. You're in the form of a human being. Jesus is in the form of God, the glory of God. That's what a Christian believes. A Christian believes much more, but he believes no less than that. That's the foundation of our lives, the grandeur of Jesus Christ. And the third thing that a Christian is, is someone who lives by that faith. He applies his beliefs in a sovereign God who has planned all things and works all things. He he works them all for our good. And the Christian believes that. And a Christian has a peace that passes all understanding. A Christian has learned contentment. Because he applies his faith that Jesus Christ is is in charge of his life. What Jesus Christ has done for us. When one loses one's wife after 53 years, it's a a blow. But, oh, if men had done it, if the devil had done it, then I I would be outraged. But my Father in Heaven, he He's in control and I'm at peace. And what he does, I don't know now, but I will know hereafter. Heaven for me won't be then a a place of frustration where for ages and ages I'll be tormented with the things that have happened to me and I don't know the reason why. He'll tell me. Face to face, he'll tell me. I live by faith in the Son of God. I preached in Providence Chapel in Grand Rapids a decade ago, I suppose it was now, and we had lunch with a couple from the church, and they are ten children. My wife and I sat at one end of the table, and he, a carpenter, and his wife at the other end, and five children each side, and... We had um, rolls and chicken soup. Good Dutch Sabbath meal. And there was a buzz of happy conversation around the table. A lovely home. And at the end he brought out a big Bible and he put the Bible down and turned to a page. He said, you preached about contentment this morning, Pastor Thomas? I said, Yes. Do you know about us? I said, um, I, I know, I know a little about you, and I did, I did know a little. But I wanted him to tell me. He said, um, My wife and I had three children, and towards Christmas a few years ago, she was driving. The lights went green. She went across. A guy came shooting down through a red light, and hit the car and and killed her. And then my wife here, her husband, was a butcher in Grand Rapids. He's a really godly man, and he helped out street people. And Joel Beakey said to me how... um, he felt one day he would become a preacher and he employed people to work um, in the butcher's trade he employed one man who was just hopeless a thief, a liar, troublemaker, unreliable he fired him the next day the man returned with a Colt forty-five and shot him dead and on the Sunday his widow's mother and father had come down to live with her at this time. And they got in the van to go to church. The five children sitting at the back, the mother driving with her father and mother in the front. And they set off to church. And then a little voice came from the back of the van We're not singing. We always sing when we go to church. And they struck up a hymn. The children sang, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Safe on His Tender Breast. Their father had been murdered that week, but he was safe. I watched the five children on each side, the ten children. they were ten statues listening to what had happened to their lives. <clears throat> he went on to tell me how she came to the church where he was, she was there. And he sympathized with her and had gone through what she'd gone through. and They fell in love and they married and they had two children of their own and there were the f- five and the three and And the two there. And they were filled with joy and peace in believing. The God of hope. The God of hope was renewing them. That's what becoming a Christian means. That you are renewed through all the changing scenes of life in trouble and in joy. There are praises that are given to you that are on your lips and in your heart. Your Heavenly Father is in control. Not chance, not fate, not the devil. In this groaning world, God is in control. We persevere in the Christian life. We persevere trusting Him putting our faith in him we we apply our church, our faith when we go to the factory tomorrow when we're in the open plan office tomorrow when we're working on the computers tomorrow when we're in school tomorrow we live by faith god, god gives us grace in all the stresses and obligations and demands that we meet we have a great high priest God has given us a banner, those who fear Him. It's a great fact. God wants our convictions to turn into a confession. He wants our life to show a lifestyle, a lifestyle of growing Christ likeness that we articulate and we speak. We give a reason to the hope that we have. When in the office there's a debate, when in school there's a debate, we nail our colors up. We're not ashamed of the gospel the next thing what a Christian is a Christian is someone who has assurance that God loves him what does Paul say in our text he loved me he gave himself for me And I think that's New Testament Christianity. It's not a hope. It's a a conviction. It's a sense of assurance. It's a confidence in what God tells us in his word. He so loved me before the foundation of the world. He gave me to his son to come into the world to live for a life of righteousness and die for an atoning death. He loved me. I was on his heart as much as the dying thief when he said today you'll be with me in paradise. He is saying to every Christian here, you're going to be with me. To be absent from the body is to be present with me, he says. The Lord's my shepherd. I'm going to lack nothing. I'm poor and needy, but the Lord thinks of me. I'm persuaded that nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ my Lord. And that's the language of assurance isn't it? Um, And it's so important. A little boy he's not doing well in school he sulks, he doesn't play with anyone and you're his teacher and you go to the headmaster and he says I'm so um, disappointed at Bill I'm He's, he's not joining in. Uh, uh, his parents are going through a divorce and they're, they're, they're very straight people. And he, he never gets words of affection from his father and mother. And it's left him, educationally and personality wise, in, in great danger for the future. You know, God has loved me so much. He's brought me here today and he's given me this message to bring to you. Explain to you what a real Christian is. And God has loved every one of you so much that he's brought you from your homes and you've come on a cold night in, in Holland and he's brought you here. And he wants you to know what a Christian is in order that you should become Christians, not great Christians, not extreme Christians, just real, real Christians. God loves you with this unconditional love of his. Do you know, it was you and me that God had in mind when he gave his only begotten son. It was love for you that Jesus had in his heart made him drink the cup that the Father had given to him and not drink any other cup. And that he took the nails with a sledgehammer that drove them through his hands and feet. He did that because he loved you so much. He wanted you to be with him forever and ever in a new new heavens where there's righteousness in everything at all the last thing I want to say about what a Christian is a Christian is virtually omnipotent do you see what Paul says Christ lives in me four sticks of dynamite Christ lives in me isn't that magnificent we we look at some of the challenges, the doctor's appointments, the possibility of losing your job, the concerns you have to be a good mother and father and care for your children. What, what burdens some of you are carrying, what mountains you have to climb, what rivers to ford, what temptations you are meeting. How can you manage? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ lives in me. Here's the, the great reality of the Christian life. The great reality. I was a little boy Second Sunday in March. 1954. It'll be 70 years next month. I went along the road. Raglan Road. To a little Baptist chapel. Which doesn't stand any longer. And. The preacher preached that night. And I was given assurance. In my heart. Yes, I need Jesus Christ. I need his covering, his friendship, his wisdom, his pedagogy, his protection, all that he provides. I need that. I'm poor without him. And so it has been in our lives. I believe you can climb any mountain, you can ford any river, you can endure any pain, you can bear any pressure if Jesus Christ is in you. All right, then. Um, By Paul's standards, are we all Christians here tonight? Are we living authentic human lives and we've not said, you're not having this to God. We've, we've given him everything. And he's entrusting us with so much. We're disciplined by the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're enjoying an assurance that God loves us. This we know for the Bible tells us so. We have access to the illimitable power Of an indwelling saviour. Am I that? Are you are you that? Then then you're a Christian. I'm not saying you're a great Christian. I'm not really interested in great Christians, but ordinary Christians. And if your faith is as thin as a spider's thread, and it goes from your life and it is lodged in Jesus Christ. That spider's thread is so strong, it can take you across the bottomless pit. It can take you across the lake of fire. It can present you faultless before God in that great day that lies before us all. You see, it's not great faith that saves. It's faith in a great Savior. And Jesus Christ is that great Savior. He's the Son of God. And I'm saying to you, it's time for you to settle this matter once and forever. Coming to Christ is a result of the Holy Spirit taking the message that you've been listening to tonight and he's laid it on your heart he's spoken to your mind and now he's speaking to your affections and to your conscience and he's saying to you it's time now this is the appointed time this is the now when you come just as you are to him just as he is his arms outstretched, willing to receive you, to take you, to make you his child, to feel his love, that henceforth, you and he should hand in hand go through life together and when the shadows of death come, he will be with you as you walk that way too, never alone a loving savior who knows everything about you and forgives you and is determined that you should be with him forever do you understand do you understand what i'm saying oh for the tongues of men and angels to make it more eloquent more irresistible but i'm just saying tonight you've heard the truth Well, now, you respond to the truth. God with us, Jesus walking the aisles now, sitting next to you, nudging you, dealing so graciously with you, being so patient with you through the long years, you've neglected him. But but now, you say, sorry, Lord, sorry. And you give yourself to him. You give him back the life you owe him. You give it to him like the cameras that he sold were given back. So, the life you owe to your creator. He gives it back to you when you give it to him. You give it to him now. It's a movement of your heart and soul as prompted by the Spirit of God. It's the new birth from above. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, do bless your word to us now so that we not only know what it is to become a Christian, but that we do become Christians tonight. That we Trust in Jesus Christ and entrust ourselves now and all the days of our lives to have you as our God, our friend, our teacher, the Lamb of God who takes our sin away, our protecting mighty fortress surrounding us with walls of salvation, taking us to heaven, saved by the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, Lord, please work that not one person should this night not know Thee and bow before Thee as their God and Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.